you have your Bibles, uh, you can open a Proverbs, but really look at the green sheet. We're in Proverbs for probably the seventh or eighth time this summer. We're working through some themes. Uh, Proverbs is a little bit different than every other book in the Bible. Uh, it is a wisdom literature, and what Solomon is trying to do is to show us the way to walk in a way that would please God. Wisdom is very practical. Uh, wisdom is how to walk in a way to please God when there's no chapter or verse that guides you. And I have really benefited a lot from different writers as I have read and studied uh, Proverbs. And most of you know that I have done a lot of reading in Robert Rayburn. He's a great resource in it. Uh, Tremper Longman is a scholar. I've read him and I've read uh, John R. W. Stott and some of his comments, but today I have to tell you that I'm more indebted to C.S. Lewis on this topic, and I'll quote him three or four times during the sermon, but he has a great chapter on pride in uh, his book on mere Christianity. With that being said, let's read, let me read you from the Word of God on your green sheet. I'll not make note of the verse numbers and things like that. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. The proud and the arrogant man, mocker, is his name. He, be he behaves with overweening pride. Those whose eyes are ever so haughty, whose glances are so disdainful. Pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. A fool's talk brings a rod to his back, but the lips of the wise protect them. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. The Lord tears down the proud man's house, but he keeps the widow's boundaries intact. When pride comes, then disgrace comes. With humility comes wisdom. And then one I left off is 27, two. Let another praise you, not you yourself. Let another lip speak well of you and not your own. Let's ask God to bless his word. <clears throat> Father, we're grateful that you have not left us in the dark, that you have not left us groping through a natural revelation or some other odd way to find out what you're like and what we're to do. But you and your graciousness and your wisdom have given us your word and even have given us this book uh, to study, to guide our ways in the ways of righteousness. So I pray that you would open our ears and our hearts that we might hear your word and might act on it. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I noticed this morning that my clock is wrong and has been for several weeks, and so that's the reason I preached past 12. And so some of you have reminded me I owe you about 15 or 20 minutes, and I'll pay you back in several years. But anyway, when we talk about uh, pride and humility, we have lots of different stories we could use. I read one where this man who was a CEO of a Fortune 500 club went home, and as they pulled into their hometown gas station, 
to get gas, he noticed his wife was talking to one of the attendants. And so when she got back in the car and they drove off, he said, well, I noticed who you were talking to somebody. Who was that? And she said, that used to be my old boyfriend. And he said, oh, really? Were you thinking the whole time if you had married him, you would be married to a gas station attendant instead of somebody that ran a Fortune 500 club? And she said, no, I thought that if I had married him, he would have been running a Fortune 500 club and you would have been a gas station attendant. There's a lot of ways in which wives can keep us humble, right? And maybe uh, vice versa. Spurgeon has said that you will either be humble or you will be humbled. And God is always opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. The wise man walks in the paths of humility and a fool walks in the paths of pride and arrogance. And so today what we're going to do, we're going to look at pride and humility kind of as the positive side of that. And what I want to do is I want to have pride defined, pride described, and then pride dealt with. So let's look at those real easy hooks, pride described, Uh, defined, I mean. The the Bible, especially in Proverbs, does not give a clear definition of pride. What it does is it warns you about it. It has a caution light about it. And it says that uh, you need to learn the way of humility because the way of the pride leads to destruction. Pride always precedes the fall. But when you look at the dictionary, you see theological dictionaries and scholars define pride in very great ways. I read one. This came out of Ligonier magazine. It says, pride is exalting yourself to a position you don't deserve. It's thinking too highly of yourself. It's making yourself more valuable, more competent, more intelligent, more sassy, more fun, more whatever. You stand on the pedestal looking down your nose at everybody else. Lewis Smeads, who's written a lot on uh, forgiveness, probably that's his greatest work, also writes this on pride. Pride is the religious sense, a refusal to let God be God. It is to grab God's status for yourself. Pride is turning down God's invitation to be a creature in his garden and instead wanting to be the creator, independent, relied on your own resources. Pride is a grand delusion, the fantasy of all fantasies, a cosmic put on the big lie. G. Gordon Liddy, who was uh, convicted under the Watergate conspiracy, remember, released from prison, said this, I have found within myself all I need and all I shall ever need. I am a man of great faith, and my faith is in G. Gordon Liddy. Could you have a better example of pride than that? Uh, Robert Rayburn says pride is idolizing the self, worshiping the self, bowing down to what you are and what you've done, and always shining your rewards and framing your accomplishments. But pride is really the essence of all sin. Remember last week we talked about anger, and we said when you're angry, anger is a secondary sin. You always look for the sin beneath the sin. Anger is a fruit of something else, whether it's impatience or jealousy or envy or whatever. But the sin, be, be, uh, the sin beneath every sin is pride. Most people believe it's the essence of what sin really is. All other sins are rooted there. 
Adam was kicked out of the garden. Adam and Eve was, were expelled from the garden because of pride. And you say, well, how was it pride? I thought it was eating the forbidden fruit. Well, how did they get tempted to eat the forbidden fruit? Did God say you will die? You'll, sure, you'll not die. The reason God doesn't want you to eat the forbidden fruit is because you'll become like God. And he thought that would be great to become like God. And besides that, it was pleasing to the eye. And so he, she gave it to her husband, Adam, and they ate, and they were expelled from the garden because of their pride. Satan was kicked out of heaven because of his pride. Most scholars would say that this refers to Adam in Isaiah 14, where it says, How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? You have been cast down to the earth, who was once laid low in the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned among the mount of the assembly on the most sacred heights of the mountains. I will send to the clouds, to the top of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. But you were brought down to the grave, to the very depths of the pit. Satan was thrown out of heaven because of pride. The Tower of Babel was torn down because of pride. You read carefully that it wasn't that they were constructing something and had a, about, uh, an ingenuity about them to build something magnificent. It was what their purpose was, that God had called man to, to live in such a way that they would make a name for him. And what they did at the Tower of Babel and said, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build something so people can say, look at that and look at them and praise be to them. And God knew that kind of attitude had to be nipped in the bud. And so all sin, under all sin in the Bible, as you find it, is pride. It's also not just the essence of sin, it's the opposite of humility. And what is humility? If you had your Bibles open, you could turn to Philippians 2, and it talks about humility there. And it talks about uh, who Christ is. And Paul is going to give you this great uh, Christology, this great creed, maybe a great hymn about Christ being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of this man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And that great hymn, that great creed about the humiliation of Christ leaving heaven and coming to be made man and being a poor man and a humble man and being humble in heart, that is there because right before that it says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. You go, wow. Our attitude is that of Christ Jesus. We're to humble ourselves. We're to serve others. We're to think of others as more important than ourselves. And pride is just the opposite. Pride is, I won't think about you. I'll think about me. That You're not more important. I'm more important. I'm not going to be a servant. You need to serve me. You need to honor me. The Bible is really, really clear that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
the grace runs downhill. Uh, one writer, scholar, said it like this, that when you are proud, you're going against the grain of the universe because God is conquering the universe through the humiliation of Christ and his exaltation. And when you follow that different pattern, you're going against the grain of what God is doing. God is about making us like Christ, who was the embodiment of humbleness. So that's what pride is defined. We know it to be bad, and that's the reason we try to defeat it in our own heart. But how do you describe it? You know, how would the Bible describe pride? Well, it describes it in lots of different ways, and I'm just going to pick three or four. It describes it about what it does and what it leads to and what it looks like in other people. Uh, Pride is, first of all, competitive. It's competitive. If you look on your sheet, uh, uh, Proverbs 30, 13, if I can find it, it says, He whose eyes are haughty, whose glances are disdainful, or he derides. Uh, Pride is competitive. He disdains everybody else because everybody else is a rival. That life is a competition. I've got to win. I've got to succeed. I've got to climb the ladder. I've got to be, have a title. I've got to have a big job description. And I've got to do that at the expense of everybody else. That pride doesn't just want to have something. It wants to have more than somebody else has. Pride doesn't want to be smart. It wants to be smarter than everybody else. Pride doesn't want to be good at something. It wants to be better than everybody else. Pride always has to do that. When you, I told you I was going to quote C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. Listen to what he says. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are not proud. They're prouder of being richer, cleverer, better-looking than others. If somebody else becomes equally rich, clever, or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. I think that's a great way of looking at pride. Everybody wants to be better than everybody else. That's pride. Somebody said that every Presbyterian minister's favorite movie is Chariots of Fire. I don't know when you should watch Chariots of Fire with your children. It's not just a, you know, fast and furious and, you know, movie. But sometimes I think every parent or grandparent ought to watch uh, Chariots of Fire with their children or grandchildren. And in there, you know that Eric Little is the one who has run in the 100-yard dash, 100-meter dash. And when he gets to the Olympic, he finds out it's going to be run on Sunday. He refuses to run on Sunday, and he runs the 400-meter instead, and he, he uh, wins that. And uh, he tells his sister, you know, that, that, yes, I'm going to be a missionary, but God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. And so he was running because of the glory of God. But he had this rival, Abrams, and he was a Jewish fellow. He was trying to compete with, 
with uh, Eric Little at every point and defeat him. And at one point in the movie, Eric Little is said to, I mean, that Abrams is said to have said this. I have, when I look down the corridor of the track and look at that lane, I have 10 seconds to prove my existence. What was he saying? These 10 seconds, that's who I am. And if I don't win, I'm nobody. I've accomplished nothing. And his life was lived in a pitiful state of depression after he didn't win. But see, as Christians, we don't have to do that. We don't have to prove our existence. God has made us in His image. He's redeemed us by His Son. And if you're in Jesus Christ, you're being renewed in the image of God. The verdict is in. You know, the, the, the jury has come back. You're right with God. You're adopted into the family. And you have to prove it to no one. And there's something about that that makes us have the right kind of competitiveness where we we see the game as an extension of glorifying God instead of defining us. Pride is competitive. Pride is haughty, contemptuous. Now verse 30, verse 13 talks about those whose eyes are ever haughty, whose glances are disdainful. In the Hebrew, the idea of haughty means to lift up your pupils. And when you lift up your pupils, what do you do? You roll your eyes. When you lift up your pupils, you look down your nose, right? You know, so haughty is rolling your eyes or looking down your nose at somebody. It's like your wife or your secretary says, so-and-so's in the office and I don't want to see you. You go, oh, you ever do that? Or, or so-and-so's on the phone, not him again, you know. Or it's walking around thinking that you have a higher place of viewing life because of who you are than they do, and you look down at them at disdainful. It looks down on people. Pride doesn't see folks as equal. Pride is never able to congratulate because they're not glad they achieved or won. And haughtiness even invades our prayers. If you have your Bible still with you, turn to Luke chapter um, 18. I'll read it if you aren't there. It's about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. There were some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down, looked down on everybody else. They're self-righteous. And Jesus told this parable, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers and evildoers, adulterers, not even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance He could not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, 
and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In that parable, when it comes to the conclusion, if you are honest with yourself, you expect that prayer, that, that passage to say, that prayer is answered. His prayer was answered, not the other one. But it doesn't say that. It says the tax collector went home justified. That God did have mercy on him. He was now right with God. And the Pharisee went home unjustified. He was doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. And he was praying about himself. I do this. I've done this. I fast. I do this. I'm not like him. And pride had had invaded his religious dominion. Pride can show up in the most holy of our places our places of worship and our places of devotion. And we have to be careful. C.S. Lewis was asked, then what do you make of a person who is full of pride but claims to know God? And C.S. Lewis says he doesn't know the God of the Bible. You know, we all like to read our press. We all like to be encouraged. And you know, and the more public your ministry or job is, the more people tell you you did a good job, you know, whether it's at the bank or successful farmer or teacher or lawyer or, or whatever. And you have to remind yourself that even your righteousness is as filthy rags. You know, the Puritans used to say, even your repentance needs to be repented of. We don't repent because we brought shame upon God. We repent because we don't want to be disciplined or we don't want the consequences. And we need friends that will tell us, you know, that we're uh, not as important as we think we are when we get in that position. Francis of Assisi got to be famous. And, you know, he wrote the poem that we all love and you know he was very eloquent and outspoken and, and people just followed him all the time and told him how good he was and how righteous he was and how close to God he was and so what Francis of Assisi did was he, he got a monk, a fellow monk to walk with him through life and remind him of his sinfulness and what he really was kind of what Spurgeon did when people complimented him overly much. Somebody would say, that was the best sermon I've ever heard you preach. And Spurgeon would say, yes, I know. The devil's already told me. You see, pride is that way. It's haughty. It's contemptuous. It looks down at everybody else because it's looking up at self. Pride is full of conflict. Strife, 14.3. It says, a fool's talk brings a rod to his back, but the lips of the wise protect him. A fool, a proud person, lives in conflict. You know, I started on my doctoral program several years ago, and uh, it's pretty humbling because I lasted one semester. Uh, But the reason I didn't finish, I've jokingly said, because I figured out y'all wouldn't listen to me more if I was a doctor 
and the deacons wouldn't pay me anymore either, so why do it, you know? And so, but I can remember our professor talking about pride, and he was a consultant to all these Fortune 500 companies. And I don't know who asked this question. It might have been me, but I can remember this question being asked. How do you go in these companies and find out where the problem is? And he said, it's easy. Look for the proud man, and the, fo- and, the, and the problems will follow him. Look for the proud man. Most conflicts, arguments in the family are because we're proud. There was a couple I read about. He came home and said something not too loving. His wife responded not too lovingly back. And they got into one of those fights that ended up with nobody saying anything. Y'all ever done, you look at me like, no, y'all, I know you have. But anyway, so you, you say, okay, I'm not going to say anything else. You know, I'm going to make her apologize, right? So they stayed, they ate in silence and slept in separate bedrooms for seven months because nobody would say, I'm sorry, or please forgive me or I didn't mean what I said, or let's reconcile. Pride causes conflict. Did you see where uh, Friday night football started? I think uh, we've already played two or three games around here at our local high schools. But did you see what happened at the high school where the Heidelberg coach was in the stands uh, scouting his opponent? And somewhere he got overly zealous and he began to yell something about, you know, this little team's beating y'all. You know, y'all are nobody. Foolish talk. That's what what happens. Unwise talk. Proud talk. And obviously a dad or a fan says, would you shut up? Y'all seen this on tape? You can look it up on tape. And and you can't hear what the guy says back, but he kind of says, come make me, big boy. And the next thing you know, they're meeting each other in the middle of the stands. And the arrogant guy who's yelling, he kind of stumbles, and that other dad grabs him in a headlock and just waylays him, you know, and gives him the beating of his life. Why was that? What was behind that strife? Pride. I can say I can do, and you can't do anything about it. So it's competitive contemptuous, causes conflict, and then it causes shame and humiliation. It always leads to shame. Proverbs 11, 2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. To be humiliated, uh, not going to say much about this one because we all know that, you know, that if, if you're humiliated, you're kind of, your words are taken and applied to your situation. And their pride comes before a fall. You know, it's always you brag on something and you're sure to fall the next time you know it. There was a boxer, his name was, I forget his first name, Tillis, Cowboy Tillis, I believe. And he came to Chicago. All he had was two suitcases and he put them down at the railway station and he raised his hand and he said, I came to conquer Chicago. And everybody's looking, and he went down to pick up his suitcases, and somebody had stolen them. Pride comes before a fall. 
What about, um, I think it was in the playoffs when the Dallas Cowboys defensive end uh, recovered a fumble, and he's running down the field, and he's holding his football out. He's hot-dogging, and he gets to about the five-yard line, and somebody knocks it out of his hand. Pride comes before destruction. And the strange thing about it is God is working to make his people humble, not to humiliate them, but to humble them, to make them less, quote, competitive in that degree, less contemptuous, less prone to conflict, less likely to be humiliated. How do you deal with pride? The first thing you do is you realize all that you have and all that you are is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. When they went into the promised land in Deuteronomy, it says this in Deuteronomy 6. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, his decrees that he's giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and your gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will grow proud and you will forget the Lord your God. You will say to yourself, my power, my strength of my hands has produced this wealth, but remember the Lord your God, for he is the one who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your ancestors this day. God is saying when you get in those places later on and I mean earlier on in, in Exodus it talked about when you live in cities you didn't build and and drink from wells you didn't dig and eat from vineyards you didn't plant then don't forget God and think you've done it yourself it says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 in different ways Paul says this but do not go beyond what is written when then you will not be puffed up being a follower of the one of us against the other. For who makes you different from anybody else? Now, what do you have you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did? You see, so pride is dealt with by realizing this is all of grace. This is a gift of God. Even if I did it, God gave me the ability. Even if I thought about it, God gave me the mind. If I worked with my hands, God gave me health. It's all of God, and to God be the glory. And the other thing you do is you look at the greatness of God. How great is our God? And you compare yourself to that, and you are, God is the Alps, and you're the Leviat Mount at, the, at Rosedale. You know, God is the ocean, and you're the Kelsey's Pond. And it says God becomes big in our lives and then we become minuscule. Our pride withers as we stand before the awesome majesty of a holy and merciful God. We are no longer the center of the universe. Christ is. And we bow down to him. Think about... Think about how God opposes the proud. That ought to be enough right there to make us try to get rid of it in our own lives. Can you imagine God 
opposing you? And what would that look like? Well, we have an example of what it looks like in Daniel chapter 4. And you can read this later. I'll I'll read through some of it, but I'll just kind of give you the background story. Daniel, there in the captivity, uh, and so you have Nebuchadnezzar. He's the great, powerful, majestic ruler, king, or whatever. And he's made the beautiful city of Babylon, and he has the hanging gardens, and Babylon was probably larger than New York. And and he just had this whole massive uh, kingdom spread out above him, and it's gone to his head. And he had this dream. And in his dream, he dreamed about a tree that reached to the heavens. And in its wing, in its limbs, and under its shade, the birds of the field and the animals of the woods found their resting place. And then in the middle of his dream, he had a messenger come and says, cut down the tree. And he woke up. And he didn't know what the dream was about. He had no idea, so he called all in his magicians and astrologers and his people that did magic arts, and he interpreted his dreams, and he told them the dream. And nobody, nobody knew what the dream was about, except Daniel. And Daniel said this, This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High has issued against you. You will be driven away from your people And you will live with the wild animals, and you will eat grass like cattle, and you'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass until you acknowledge that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and He gives them to whoever He wants. Until you acknowledge God is God, and God has given you this, then you're going to be driven out like a wild animal. A year went by, Babylon was still Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar was still Nebuchadnezzar and he came out one morning and he looked from the roof of his palace and he said is this not great Babylon I have built as my royal residence my mighty power by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty and while the words were still on his lips a voice came from heaven This is what was decreed for you, Nebuchadnezzar. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from his people. He ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven. His hair grew like feathers of an eagle, and his nails were like the claws of the birds. And at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes. I raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored, and I praised the Most High God. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures forever and ever, and all the people on the earth are regarded as nothing. He does whatever He pleases, and the powers of the heaven and the people of the earth, and nobody can hold back His hand. At that time, my sanity was restored. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything He does is right and all His ways are just. And then the concluding verse is the best one. And those, talking about all of those, and those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. That God is going to have you humble or He will humble you. And what is more humbling than the cross? 
that there on the cross, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, was humiliated. And when you look at that, you are humbled to the point that you sing with Isaac Watts, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Amen. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. May we live as humble people, aware of who you are and who we are. May we consider others more important than ourselves. May we be servants. May we live to the glory of Christ. And if we have not given ourselves to you, may we do so even today. In Jesus' name, amen.